0: Chapter 9 of The Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scotty Smith. The Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays by Brander Matthews. Chapter 9 Concerning Conversation. 1. IT IS NOT ALWAYS THAT FOREIGNERS, ADRIFT FOR A FEW WEEKS IN THESE UNITED STATES, EXHIBIT THAT condescension WHICH LOWELL RESENTED SHARPLY. SOMETIMES THEY REVEAL THEMSELVES AS VERY FRANK IN EXPRESSING THEIR DISAPPOINTMENT AND THEIR DISAPPROVAL. IT CANNOT BE DENIED THAT THEY ARE OFTEN DISAPPOINTED IN US. PERHAPS ALMOST AS OFTEN AS WE ARE DISAPPOINTED IN THEM. They may have ventured across the Western Ocean merely to spy out the land, or they may have arrived as missionaries of culture, having prepared themselves to enlighten us by means of lectures in words of one syllable, to borrow a pertinent phrase of Colonel Higginson's. But whether they come as single spies or in lecturing battalions, they rarely display the self-control which prevented Thackeray from adverse criticism of his quantum hosts dickens had been welcomed as a guest of the nation but he did not hold that the acceptance of our hospitality debarred him from the privilege of speaking his mind freely about his entertainers many lesser men have shared our bread and salt and not a few of them have felt free to follow the example of dickens rather than that of thackeray In the fall of 1909, a wandering British philosopher, who hailed from the University of Cambridge, was a guest at various American colleges. And after he had gone back to his own place, he published in a Cambridge Review his opinion that in America there is, broadly speaking, no culture. There is instruction, there is research, there is technical and professional training, there is specialization in science and in industry. There is every possible application of life to purposes and ends, but there is no life for its own sake And he declared that you will find if you travel long in America that you are suffering from a kind of Atrophy you will not at first realize what it means But suddenly it will flash upon you that you are suffering from lack of conversation You do not converse you cannot you can only talk it is the rarest thing to meet a man who when a subject is started is willing or able to follow it out into its ramifications to play with it to embroider it with pathos or with wit to penetrate to its roots to trace its connections and affinities question and answer anecdote and jest are the staple of american conversation and above all information they have a hunger for positive facts In a sweeping assertion like this there is certainly no hint of condescension, even if there is in it a disquieting assumption of superiority. That it should have been made by an Englishman is a little startling, since our kin across the sea would seem to be related to us in nothing more intimately than in their desire for information and their hunger for positive facts. It would have been more understandable if this assertion had been risked by a Frenchman, since the french are governed by the social instinct and trained from their youth to be easy in converse themselves and also to put others at their ease there it is however made by an englishman and this leaves us wondering what hawthorne could have meant when he made one of the entries in the notebook he kept while he was in exile as consul to liverpool i wish i could know exactly what the english style good conversation Perhaps it is something like plum-pudding as heavy, but seldom as rich 2 Yet there is profit always in weighing the words of an alien critic of American characteristics And in trying to discover how much of truth may be contained in his offhand opinion We can afford to overlook the casual discourtesy of his supercilious and superficial phrase if we are able to get at the core of his accusation It is well that we should know ourselves, and we cannot deny our gratitude to the foreigner who forces us to take stock of our deficiencies. If we are frank, we must admit that question and answer, antidote and jest, are frequent in our mouths, and that our ears hunger for information. The relish for antidote and jest is one manifestation of that omnipresent American humor which is also good humor, and which may often degenerate into mere triviality. The desire for positive facts is an attribute of our practicality, of our ability to turn everything to account. We are not unlike the Athenians of old, in our eagerness to hear and to tell some new thing, and probably some part of the widespread ability to shift our ingenuity suddenly into new channels may be ascribed to this very characteristic a chance fact dropped in a talk by a stranger, a casual scrap of information picked up by the wayside. These things may have been the seed corn of many a new industry. We have no cause to blush when we are told that we have a hunger for positive facts, or even when we are assured that the staple of our talk is question and answer. This is as it should be, and no man has a right to expect anything more in ordinary talk. But the imported lecturer made a sharp distinction between ordinary talk and genuine conversation. Talk is all in a day's work. It is practical, it consists of question and answer, it lends itself lightly to the interchange of facts and to the swapping of stories. Conversation is another thing altogether, or rather, it is the same thing, elevated and glorified. There is the same difference between talk and conversation that there is between house painting and the mural decoration of Pouvy de Chauvin or of John Lafarge. Talk might be called one of the mechanical arts, whereas conversation is one of the fine arts. Only a man born to the craft, specifically gifted for it, trained by years of practice, Enlightened by the example of the masters of conversation, can take a subject, follow it out in all its ramifications, play with it, embroider it with pathos or with wit, penetrate to its roots, and trace its connections and affinities. A great converser is like any other great artist, born, not made, or rather, born and also made our cambridge critic has here supplied an admirable definition of the fine art of conversation as distinguished from the frankly inartistic talk of everyday life where he made his slip was in expecting to find practitioners of this delicate art scattered all over the united states wherever his engagements might take him in no country of the world is any one of the fine arts cultivated by the average man and it is absurd to expect the average man to lift himself to this exalted level of artistic accomplishment the average man has no time for any of the fine arts he's too busy trying to keep a roof over his head and to make a living for his family the masters of conversation are no more frequent in america than they are anywhere else and the visitor from abroad is no more likely to drop into the center of a circle of these artists here than an american abroad is likely to happen into a similar group on the other side in no country do these artists in conversation hold an open exhibition and sell tickets at the door hawthorne for example before he went to england had attended the saturday luncheons at boston with lowell at one end of the table and holmes at the other AND IT IS SMALL WONDER THAT HE FAILED TO FIND CONVERSATION OF THAT KIND IN LIVERPOOL. THE ITINERANT LECTURER WHO RECORDED HIS SUFFERINGS FROM A LACK OF CONVERSATION HERE IN THE UNITED STATES DID NOT HAVE THE GOOD FORTUNE TO PENETRATE INTO THE CIRCLES WHERE THAT FINE ART IS CULTIVATED. AT HOME HE KNEW WHERE TO GO AND GET JUST WHAT HE WANTED, AND BECAUSE HE DID NOT KNOW WHERE TO GET IT HERE, HE WAS RASH ENOUGH TO DENY THAT IT EXISTED the blunder may have been natural enough but it was a blunder nevertheless and it was intensified by his failure to reflect on the fact that he was not one of us but an outsider a man not tested an unknown quantity passing through hastily and only pausing here and there to eat and sleep and to speak his peace and then away even if he had by chance found himself in a circle of true lovers of conversation He himself would have been a disturbing element, and he might have departed without ever suspecting that he had been in the company of the very artists whose society he was vainly seeking. A master of conversation might shrink from showing off before a stranger. He might prefer to reserve for his intimates the full display of his powers. 3. Our British visitor failed to find fit conversation here in America yet he seems to have had no doubt that it existed in england but a recent american writer is saddened because it cannot now be found anywhere he has asserted that present-day conversation has sunk far below the high levels of the talk of the past that our conversational performances are flat thin and poor and that conversation is indeed a lost art He believed that this assertion would pass unchallenged, and he set it in the foreground of a welcome volume into which he collected half a score of essays on the subject. He even ventured to entitle this agreeable gathering, The Lost Art of Conversation. Here again we find cropping up the ineradicable belief that this is a day of decadence and that there were giants in other days to whose stature we cannot hope to stretch ourselves. We are all prone to be praisers of past times, especially when we are very young or very old. The great masters are all dead, and we have been born too late into an exhausted world. There are no great actors now, and no great orators, and no great conversationalists. Yet this belief is the result of an optical illusion, like that which leads us to think the telegraph poles are closer together the farther off they are as a matter of fact good conversation is probably no rarer today in these united states than it ever was anywhere it must always be rare if conversation is truly one of the fine arts It flourished in London in the 18th century in the club which gathered about Johnson, although his selfish brutality must have often killed the easy interchange of questions and answer, since Johnson was incorrigibly domineering. And, as Goldsmith said, whenever his pistol missed fire, he knocked you down with the butt. CONVERSATION FLOURISHES TODAY IN NEW YORK IN SEVERAL LITTLE CIRCLES WHERE THERE ARE MEN OF THE WORLD AND MEN OF AFFAIRS WHO ARE ABLE TO FOLLOW A SUBJECT OUT TO ITS RAMIFICATIONS AND TO PLAY WITH IT, PENETRATING TO ITS ROOTS AND EMBROIDERING IT WITH WIT AND WITH PATHOS. SUCH LITTLE CIRCLES ARE NOT MANY, OF COURSE, BUT THEY EXIST HERE AND NOW, KNOWN TO THOSE WHO ARE COMPETENT TO JOIN THEM, AND NECESSARILY UNKNOWN TO THE REST OF THE WORLD in the illuminating collection of essays on the lost art of conversation i find the two characteristically acute papers of robert louis stevenson on talk and talkers stevenson was a delightful talker himself as i can testify although i had only the privilege of one afternoon's session with him not long before he left england for the last time in these essays he painted the portraits of six of his friends whom he held to be masters of the art of conversation, these friends, whose powers he was celebrating, he disguised under various names: Burley, Springheeled Jack, Cockshot, and Purcell. Most of them are now dead, and there is no indiscretion in giving their real names. Cockshot was Professor Fleming Jenkin, whose biography Stevenson was to write. Burley was his collaborator, W. E. Henley. Who turned traitor after Stevenson's death? Springheel Jack was his cousin, R. A. M. Stevenson. Athelred was, I believe, his executor, Mr. Baxter. Opelstein was John Addington Simmons. And Purcell was Mr. Edmund Goss. It was my good fortune in the early eighties of the last century to make the acquaintance of four of the six. I never had the pleasure of talking with Simmons or with Mr. Baxter, and I think I had speech with R. A. M. Stevenson only two or three times. But the other three I met frequently, often together, although they were not as intimate with each other severally as they were with Stevenson himself. That they were masters of the art of conversation, conscious and deliberate artists, this is beyond all question. Fleming Jenkins, more especially, was one of the most gifted and spontaneous talkers I have ever had the delight of listening to, full of whim and wisdom, delighting in expounding theories tinctured with his own sparkling originality. Yet I should hesitate to assign to any one of these four British subjects a higher place in the hierarchy of good talkers than I should bestow upon four American citizens. Thomas B. Reed and John Hay, Clarence King and Thomas Bailey Aldrich They were all wits, but they none of them insisted on reducing talk to a soliloquy as Macaulay and Gladstone were wont to do a Brilliant conversationalist cannot be a monologue artist He must give and take he must play the game fairly allowing his associates a chance to show what they can do also on the other hand Wit is the most precious ingredient of good talk, and no lover of high converse will hold with Pryor's man who thinks wit the bane of conversation and says that learning spoils a nation. Tom Reed's conversation was a constant delight, due in part to his caustic wit. John Hay had the same wide knowledge of men and affairs, and his talk was also flavored with a subacid wit. Clarence King had an equally large acquaintance with the world, and an equally frank delivery in his opinion about men and things. And as for Aldrich, pearls of wit dropped from his lips whenever he opened his mouth. I chanced to say to him once that it was curious how a certain British scholar, who seemed to have read everything and written about everything, should not have gained greater wisdom by all his labors. "'Yes,' said Aldrich, He is like a gas-pipe, no richer for the illumination it has conveyed. 4. Of course, this specimen brick is wholly inadequate even to suggest an idea of the house of conversation in which Reed and Hay, Aldrich and King, made themselves at home. Good talk is not merely a swift succession of good things, and after a while a sequence of smart sayings will prove fatiguing. THE SUBJECT MUST BE EMBROIDERED WITH PATHOS AS WELL AS WITH WIT, AND IT MUST BE PENETRATED TO ITS ROOTS AND EXPLORED IN THE AFFINITIES, AS A BRITISH LECTURER ASSERTED. GOOD TALK CALLS FOR THE CLASH OF OPINIONS AND FOR THE SHOCK OF PREJUDICES. CONTRADICTION, THE COURTEOUS CONTRADICTION OF AN EQUAL WHO HAS SELF-RESPECT SO ABUNDANT THAT HE RESPECTS ALSO THE VIEWS OF HIS OPPONENT. CONTRADICTION IS OF THE ESSENCE OF THE CONTRACT. There never was a more foolish definition than that which declared an agreeable man to be a man who agrees with you So far as conversation is concerned an agreeable man is one who disagrees with you courteously, but insistently Who assaults your private opinions and who takes your pet prejudices by storm? for really good talk you need the man who can see both sides of a question and who can suddenly discover a third side disconcerting to both parties he may be a feeble arithmetician who tries to make two half-truths equal to a whole truth and yet even this may be risked in conversation sprung upon the hearers unexpectedly to force them to go back to first principles it seemed fairest to match stevenson's quartet of british conversers with the four americans now departed and therefore to be named here without impropriety in my own generation i should be at no loss to single out at least half a dozen masters of the art of conversation not unworthy of comparison with those whom i have already called to the witness stand two or three of my colleagues at columbia university could not be omitted from any catalogue of competent conversers they are scholars who have not allowed their wide knowledge to weigh down their wit and who are free from the reproach that vovenarg brought against the men of learning who resemble gross feeders with a bad digestion equally insistent upon admission to the list of good talkers i happen to know are two artists one a mural painter and the other an illustrator whose conversation has the ring of the true metal Both of them have what Stevenson credited to Henley, a desire to hear, although not always to listen. Although both of them may succumb on occasion to the temptation to monologue, they can be tempted into team play, serving an idea like a tennis ball, with long rallies during which the subject flies high and is returned sharply and seems about to fall to the ground, only to be caught up dexterously and driven into an unexpected corner. The reason why conversation of the highest type is infrequent is that its substance must be ideas rather than things or persons. Now the immense majority of mankind seem to be interested, if not solely, at least chiefly, in persons. Nothing human is foreign to them and they take a keen relish in discussing their fellow-creatures. Yet the bulk of this talk is about individuals known to the talkers themselves, and conversation of the majority rarely aspires to deal with humanity at large, with men and women in their ampler relations. For the most part this talk is merely gossip, the interchange of question and answer about friends and acquaintances. A comfortable minority may like to converse about things and to exchange information. It is this minority which exhibits that hunger for facts which our British visitor noted. Comparatively few are those who can lift themselves up to the level of general ideas and who can tunnel down to the principles which govern human conduct. Yet conversation displays itself to best advantage only when the participants are willing to deal with ideas rather than with persons and things, although without neglecting these. Not only must they be willing to do this, they must also be capable of it, They need a broad basis of knowledge, as well as a shrewd understanding of human nature, and of the interplay of the social forces. When the requirements and conditions of genuine conversation are clearly comprehended, we need not be surprised that it is a rarity today, and that it always has been a rarity. And we can appreciate the full meaning of Holmes' assertion in the Autocrat of the breakfast table that Talking is one of the fine arts, the noblest, the most important, the most difficult, and its fluent harmonies may be spoiled by the intrusion of a single harsh note. 1910 End of chapter 9